The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you this morning, if you would, to take your Bibles and open to Luke chapter 16. We will this morning give attention simply to one verse in Luke 16, though we will also look to Matthew chapter 19 and 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you want to mark those in your Bible as we move along. Luke chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus says to those who are listening, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. That's the word of the Lord for us in brevity this morning. We turn our attention today to the matter of divorce and remarriage. It is an issue to which I believe the church in our culture needs to speak with much greater precision and much greater conviction. I say that really for two reasons. I say that first because Jesus speaks very clearly and very directly to this issue and on this subject, and his church should reflect his teaching. The Bible is not vague on the topic. And I say it also because our culture speaks loudly and clearly also on the topic and on the issue. And the two messages could not be further apart from one another. They couldn't be more opposite. Hardly a day goes by where you and I can't turn on celebrity news and hear about the latest couple whose marriage is on the rocks and headed toward a divorce. People marry They live together for a few years, and then they divorce and move on. And people watch with bated breath for the next celebrity couple who'll be on the rocks in their marriage. Whether it's Brangelina or the Kardashians, or Miley Cyrus or Tom Brady, it doesn't matter to whom you look, the message the culture sends is clear. And the message is marriage is disposable. As long as it fills your, your, your selfish, narcissistic needs, you engage and you enjoy. And the moment it doesn't, you ditch it. You move on. You go find yourself or find someone else who will fulfill whatever needs it is you lack. The problem is, no matter how many you-go girls you can shout at celebrities who go down this path, Nothing can hide the personal devastation and the cultural deterioration that results when that philosophy takes root in a heart, in a life, in a culture. Illustrative of the issue is you could could do this on your own. Just go Google, how do I know if I should divorce? And you'll find some amazing things on the World Wide Web. For instance, you could go to brides.com and you would find there some wonderful advice. If you're wondering whether or not you should stay, remain in your marriage and be faithful to the covenant you've made or you should ditch that other person and go look for somebody else if you want to know how to know whether you should or you shouldn't, you evaluate your relationship, brides.com tells us, and, and look for these kind of signs. These are signs that you should probably go ahead and pursue divorce. First, the relationship feels toxic. Second, small irritants have become sources of anger. So if, if little things have making, are making you angry, you should probably divorce. Or if you look at your, your relationship and, and, and you evaluate it and you see that complacency has taken over, that's probably a sign that you need to move on. Or if you look at your spouse and you evaluate life and you see that you just don't really have common ground on important issues, divorce is probably in your purview. Do you hear that? You don't get along. Little things make you angry. 
You don't see the eye to eye on particular issues. The, the relationship doesn't feel right anymore. You just divorce. You just go find somebody else. Presumably with whom you can find common ground and with whom you won't be complacent and with whom small issues won't draw anger out from inside your heart. A relationship where it won't feel bad or feel toxic. Marriage is disposable if it doesn't meet your needs. So you couple that message with the fact that culturally, we've redefined what constitutes a marriage to begin with, and on top of that, we're confused about what actually constitutes a man or a woman. Putting all that together, it should be absolutely no surprise to any of us that relationships are a wreck, that divorce is rampant, and we have a nation of people who are absolutely reeling from the pain and the grief and the shame and the scars of divorce. I mean, if you just think about it for a minute, how fast the slide has gone in this category. Just 20 years ago, if I were preaching this sermon, this very same sermon, I wouldn't have to take time to define for you what a marriage is. We'd just move right on, wouldn't we? Just 10 years ago, if I were preaching this message to you, we wouldn't have to stop and ask the question, what is a man and what is a woman, in order to be able to define what a marriage is, in order to be able to address divorce. And yet both are necessary today. If you were to read statistics, and I'm not sure how, how much we can count on these, they just simply seem to be markers for me at least. We're told that somewhere in the neighborhood today of 40 to 50% of first marriages end in divorce. When it comes to second marriages, somewhere around 60 to 67%. When it comes to third marriages, 73%. The numbers go up, not down. Now, there's good news in the statistics if you were to spend time looking through them. We're told, at least by the numbers, that the rate of divorce has been gradually declining since 2011. We can celebrate that and give thanks to the Lord for that. But it doesn't mitigate the reality that divorce is an issue in our culture that is having massive implications all around and so this morning, as we come to God's Word, it's important for us to ask the question, not what does the culture say, not what do celebrities say, not what does the internet say, but we have to ask the question, what does God say about divorce and remarriage? What does His Word teach us that we can anchor our lives upon as true? And so that's our task this morning, to look to God's Word and ask the question, what does it tell us about divorce and remarriage. And I want to say as we go into this, there are two very distinct dangers in looking at this issue and exploring it together. The first danger is that as Christians, we can come to the Word of God and we can raise the biblical standard too high. We can go beyond what the Word of God actually says, and we can raise the standard higher than the Word of God actually does. And we can set the bar so high and the consequences so severe that it traps people into lives of endless guilt and shame and self-condemnation. We want to avoid that this morning. The other danger in addressing it is that we set the bar too low. That we lower the biblical standard that we explain it away to the point where it essentially means nothing. To the point where we set the bar so low that people feel the freedom to willfully flaunt God's law without any consequences. And, and we encourage people to live licentious lives of, that, that essentially shame the name of Jesus and invite painful consequences into their own lives and their own homes. And so I give you that warning as you approach the text and as I do it and as together we do, we need to be very careful that we say what God says, that we don't raise the standard too high and crush people and we do not set the standard too low and encourage godless living. Both errors run wild in the Christian community and they have my whole life, my observation. In fact, the religious leaders of Jesus' day were doing both of these things with God's law. And, and they were doing, particularly 
in this area just what you and I are tempted to do on many occasions. They were being very self-righteously legalistic and merciless with the sins that they were not tempted to. And they were being incredibly lenient and accommodating with the sins that they wanted to indulge. And it's to that very issue that Jesus is addressing them in this context, isn't it? They're cruel and merciless with other people in regards to sins that don't tempt them. But when it comes to things that they want to indulge in, they're lenient and merciful. It's called hypocrisy. And it's a temptation for all who follow the Lord. In the context of Luke 16, that's exactly what's going on. Jesus has confronted the religious leaders for their self-righteousness. They were mercilessly condemning people who they had deemed to be sinners while pridefully exalting themselves as righteous. And they were doing it on a number of fronts. But they were doing that by means of twisting and contorting the law of God to suit themselves. They were highlighting the sins that were easier for them to keep, and they were minimizing and explaining away the sins that they wanted to flaunt. In short, they were self-righteous sinners who thought themselves, themselves to be very, very righteous. And Jesus confronts them in their selfish abuse of the law in the previous passage that Pastor Kelly taught us last week. So when we get to verse 18, what we have here is Jesus still addressing this self-righteousness in the religious leaders who were exalting themselves as righteous while all along literally flaunting the law of God in a hundred different ways. And he highlights for them that one of the most egregious ways that they were doing that, it was in the area of marriage divorce, and remarriage. They had so diluted the biblical teaching on this issue and redefined it, they had contorted Deuteronomy 24 to satisfy their own selfish desires. They had basically set up a system whereby a man could divorce his wife for just about any frivolous reason he could dream up. Women, of course, were not afforded the same right in the culture. But the religious leaders were, they could marry and they could divorce and they could do it at will and they could do it as many times as they wanted to do it and they could do it and call it righteous. And that's exactly what they were doing. Exactly. It was an egregious violation of God's law and it was an absolute clear way that Jesus could expose their unrighteousness. And that's why Jesus raises the issue in Luke chapter 16. He's not here intending to do or to offer a comprehensive teaching on the issue of divorce and remarriage. He's bringing up the issue in a very simple and concise statement as a way of exposing one of the most egregious ways that the self-righteous religious leaders were flaunting the law of God while presenting themselves to be righteous. It was in this area of marriage and divorce. And simply making this concise statement, Jesus was putting them on public notice. He was essentially saying to them, you hold yourself up as righteous, as though you keep the law of God. May I remind you what the law of God has to say about marriage and divorce and remarriage? Because you're blasting through it at every turn and pretending like you're obeying the Lord. And so it's for that purpose that Jesus brings up the issue. So we shouldn't expect in in Luke 16 uh, that he is somehow uh, pulling out of this conversation about self-righteousness and intending to give us a comprehensive teaching on divorce and remarriage. He is not. But for our purposes this morning, it provides us the opportunity to sort of zoom out into the bigger picture of what the scriptures have to say about this very important issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And so for this morning, with what time we have remaining, that is our task. In order for us to get a more comprehensive picture, you would want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, really as a first stop, beginning in verse 3. Perhaps a parallel passage to the Luke 16. And about the same time frame, we're told in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3 through 5, the following. 
the Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so we begin sort of our look at this issue here in Matthew 19, and we ask the question, what is a marriage? Because that's where Jesus goes in response to the question. He defines what a marriage is to begin with. This really, in Matthew 19, was another uh, scheme by the religious leaders to try and trap Jesus. They were, uh, they, were, they were just like I had mentioned a moment ago. They were, divorce was rampant among the religious leaders and rampant amongst the people of God. And it was rampant because of their permissive teaching on this issue. So many people in the crowd who would have been listening would have been divorced. And so the goal here is not to find out what God's word really says. The goal was to try to trap Jesus into saying something that would alienate some portion of his crowd. So if he comes back to their, their, to their question with a hard-nosed, sort of legalistic response about divorce, there's a good chance he'll alienate the divorced people in the crowd. And that's exactly what the religious leaders were hoping for. And so they ask him this question. Give us your opinion, Jesus, on this matter of divorcing men divorcing their wives. Are they allowed to do it or not? What do you think? And Jesus' response is pretty remarkable. He doesn't fall into the trap of giving his own opinion. He says two things. He says, essentially, number one, actually directly number one, haven't you read your Bible? That's the first question you need to consider. Have you not read your Bible? It doesn't matter what I think. What matters is what God thinks. And he's already said what he thinks in the book of Genesis. Have you not read it? pointed question to religious leaders who are experts at the Old Testament. But in response to their question, he points them back to original creation. He points them back to God's design for humanity in the original creation. And we see in this response really three things that we need to understand at the outset about marriage before we can really begin to talk about divorce and remarriage. The first thing that we see very clearly is that marriage is a unique relationship between one one man and one woman. It is a unique relationship between one man and one woman. When God made Adam, he made him a biological male. When God made Eve, he made her a biological female. And he created the two to come together as one flesh. He did not make any extra people in case they got tired of each other. He did not make any spare people in case Adam and Eve fell out of love or they needed to at some point feel like they should go find themselves with someone else. There were no spares created because no spares were needed. God's design was for one man and for one woman to come together in the bond of marriage. And it was through that union of a man and a woman that God designed for humanity to grow and to flourish. It formed really the foundation and the template for all of marriage that was to come. And so God says here, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and he shall hold fast to his wife. That hold fast, that term that's translated that in the ESV comes from a a word that means to, to glue things together. A man and a woman are to come together and they're to stick like glue together forever. That's God's design. There is no other kind of relationship that can rightly be called a marriage apart from that. Two women who come together in a committed relationship may be in a committed relationship, but it cannot rightly be called marriage. Two men can come together and have a a very fond affection or even a love for one another and can commit to living together in some kind of a relationship, but that is not, under any circumstance, a marriage, at least in the eyes of God. 
And it isn't because God designed marriage and he established it as one biological man and one biological woman who come together. Now, governments have the authority to recognize any kind of relationship they want for sort of civil rights and civil benefits. A government can say any kind of relationship can form and, and, and be worthy of some sort of civil right or civil benefit. But they cannot truly define any other relationship as marriage. They can call it marriage, but it doesn't make it marriage. It certainly isn't in God's eyes. What a government doesn't create, it can't redefine. What God creates, only he can define. And God created marriage, and he established marriage, and he established it as one man and one woman. That is what marriage is, by definition. It is designed, it is created, and it was established by God. Adam and Eve were created and placed in the garden, and they were made to perfectly complement one another. They were designed to be able to procreate together. They were designed to be able to come together and enjoy one another physically. They were designed to be able to come together, to unite relationally, and to become one flesh. That's how God designed humanity. He designed it, he created it, he established it. And it's clear that he established it as a permanent relationship that was not to be broken. They're joined together by God to become one flesh. Permanent, lifelong relationship. That's why he says, what therefore God has joined together... Let not man separate. That's pretty clear, isn't it? When God unites a man and a woman and he glues them together and they become one flesh, that is a union created by God. And something created by God, no man has the right to come along and rip that apart. To do so is a serious act of rebellion against God. In fact, if you were to look back at early Mosaic law, you would see that the only thing that could rip apart that union legitimately was death. And that's why, particularly in the Mosaic law, if a spouse committed adultery, the penalty for that adultery was to take them out to the city gate and to do what? To stone them to death. So, what is a marriage? A marriage takes place when a biological man and a biological woman leave their parents and they unite together in a lifelong covenant of committed relationship to one another. That is what a marriage is. That is what God designed to take place. Anything apart from that is not a marriage. So what is God's perspective then on divorce? If that's what a marriage is, what does God have to say about this issue of divorce? Well, in Matthew chapter 19, verses 7 through 9, we continue in the same conversation. They said to him, after he said that, what he said to them, why then does Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now you need to understand a little context here. What the religious leaders were doing was they were arguing from Deuteronomy 24, from the words of Moses, they were arguing from this that God allowed for marriage and allowed for divorce in just about any sort of circumstance. And you say, well, how in the world do they get to that? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 24, 1 says this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. That's where Deuteronomy chapter 24, 1 ends. If you notice that that statement began with a when and then an if clause, right? And if you're to read the continual context, he goes on to say in that context, if she goes and marries someone else and the same thing happens again, is she able to go back and remarry the first guy? And there's all this complicated thing. But the whole context of Deuteronomy 24, one in the very first part of that, is a, a hypothetical scenario that's playing out that is being addressed. But they looked at that and they zeroed in on this and they found, at least in their minds, a loophole to this issue of divorce. 
And they argued that here, Moses was permitting, they actually say commanding, divorce for indecency. Right? Indecency. If then she finds no favor in his eyes because, she, because he's found some indecency in her. And of course, what they did was they then saw a loophole. If, if, if I find some indecency in her, then I can write her a certificate of divorce and send her on her way. Well, what actually constitutes indecency? Well, you can only imagine what they did with that, right? They took indecency and they defined that so broadly that it encompassed nearly anything a woman could possibly do. So in such a case, these men could do anything they wanted and just accuse their wife of indecency. Most prominent teacher was a rabbi by the name of Hillel. And William Barclay writes about some contextual information about what the school of Hillel taught. He said the school of Hillel said that it could mean, this word indecency, it could mean if she spoiled a dish of food, if she spun in the street, if she talked to a strange man, if she was guilty of speaking disrespectfully of her husband's relations in his hearing, if she was a brawling woman, which was defined as a woman whose voice could be heard in the next house. Don't you like that? What's a brawling woman? It's one that the neighbors can hear when she gets mad. And the women would find, you know, a loophole there. I just got to keep my voice down enough so the neighbors can't hear, right? Rabbi Agaba said, went so far as to say that a man could divorce his wife if he found a woman who was fairer than she. So you see what's going on here, right? Anything, you, 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 you burn dinner, that's indecency, you're out of here. You spin in the street, whatever that means, you're done. Find me another woman. They basically made this into a loophole where they could at will divorce their wives for any reason and satisfy their own desires and lusts. Nowhere in Deuteronomy 24 does it command divorce. The whole thing is a hypothetical situation intended to sort of determine a very specific matter of law. But Jesus is essentially saying, God doesn't condone what you're doing, and neither does Moses. God doesn't condone any of this. What you're doing is a, a flagrant violation of God's law. It was because of the hardness of your hearts that Moses made an allowance for divorce. And he makes it clear in this passage in Matthew, verses 7 through 9, that the indecency here meant sexual immorality. Jesus defines it very specifically, where they were defining it very broadly. He was essentially saying, because in grace, God does not extract the death penalty in every case of adultery, which would have ended the marriage. He has allowed for a divorce to be granted in such cases as a grace to the people involved. Because God doesn't kill every adulterer and thereby end the marriage. God has made an allowance for divorce in such cases. What does God think about divorce? Well, he hates divorce. Malachi 2.16, God declares that he hates divorce. It's not the way he designed relationships to work. It is, in fact, the ripping apart of a union that was intended by God to be lifelong. But while God hates divorce, he does not hate people who are divorced. He hates divorce. And frankly, I know a lot of divorced people, and I have a lot of divorced friends, and I don't know any of them who love divorce either. It's a painful, grievous, horrible experience, even in the best of circumstances. Ask anybody who's been through it. But in spite of God's perspective on the issue in general, God has made allowances for it. And we see in the word of God an allowance for divorce in two very particular situations. Apart from these two particular situations, to divorce and to rip apart a marriage and to then remarry is to compound the sin of divorce with the sin of adultery. That's what Jesus is actually saying here. Now, we've already mentioned the first of these two situations, and that is sexual immorality, Matthew 19, 9. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The word sexual immorality here is the word porneia. That probably sounds familiar to you. It's related to some English words that we derive from that. It's a, a broad word, a broad term that encompasses really any type of illicit sexual activity. 
So in the context of marriage, it always means divorce because, or it always means, excuse me, adultery because the adultery by definition is elect, sort of illicit sex outside of the marriage covenant. That's what he's talking about here. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So God made an accommodation via Moses and we're told that he did that due to hardness of heart. This idea of a hardness of heart that Jesus speaks of here, it suggests, at least in my estimation, a condition where adultery is prolonged and the sinning spouse is unrepentant and it makes reconciliation and normal marriage in the future impossible. In such a case, God permits divorce. When you're married and your spouse commits prolonged, unrepentant adultery, they're in sexual relations outside of the marital covenant with other people or another person, and they are unrepentant, and they refuse to repent, and they refuse to turn back to the Lord. They refuse to seek reconciliation and restoration of the marriage because of the hardness of their heart. God permits divorce. The offended party is able to be removed from that situation and divorce and not be guilty before the Lord. God is a gracious God. There is a second accommodation that we see in the text of Scripture, and you would have to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15 to see that one. We could summarize it by just simply calling it abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. The Apostle Paul is writing in the context of the city of Corinth, and he says in verse 15 of chapter 7, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Now, what's the context of all of this, and what does it mean? In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul is writing under the authority of the Holy Spirit. He's writing divine scripture on equal level with the words of Jesus from Matthew 19, equal authority. He is writing to the Corinthian church. In chapter 7, he's writing general instructions about marriage. And it was important because Corinth was an incredibly immoral city. Every sort of sexual perversion that you can imagine happening in our culture right now was happening for the most part in Corinth in the first century. None of it's really new, to be honest. There was all of this sexual perversion going on, and they had it in first century Corinth. The problem was the church at Corinth was now made up of all of these converts who had come out of that culture. They had been saved out of a sexually illicit culture. So it's not surprising that in their church they're dealing with all sorts of issues related to marriage and sexuality. Is anybody surprised by that? We are not, right? We shouldn't be. And so Paul, in chapter 7, begins to address to that church, in that context, several issues related to marriage and sexuality and divorce. He begins chapter 7, really, by addressing the whole issue of sexuality within marriage. And he says right out of the chute that husbands and wives are to have active sexual lives, that this is to be an active part of the marriage relationship, that neither the husband is permitted to deprive his wife of sexual pleasure, nor is the wife permitted to, to deprive the husband of sexual pleasure. To do so is to sin and violate God's design for marriage, and to do so is to do nothing other than to invite temptation into the relationship. Husbands and wives are made to come together to find joy and pleasure in one another, and that is to be an active part of the relationship. It is, sex is not a, a privilege to be earned in marriage. It is a responsibility and a joy for both partners in which they engage. The only exception, Paul says, is for a short time by mutual agreement for focused prayer. Basically, a mutually agreed upon fast for a short time so as to not invite temptation, he says. 
He moves from that into speaking about the virtue of singleness. And he says, there is some particular virtue in remaining single. A single person can serve God in ways that a married person cannot. A single person can have single-hearted devotion to the Lord. They do not have the responsibilities of a family and children. They can be solely focused on the Lord and serve him in ways that married people can't. So there is a virtue in that. Paul himself was in that condition, and he considered that a gift, a unique gift from the Lord that there are people who have the gift of singleness and that is not an evil thing it is a good thing he says he concludes that by saying however it's better to get married than to burn and he doesn't mean burn in hell he means to burn with lust right that's what he's talking about if you can't be content in your singleness and you're tempted toward lust then you need to find a spouse and get married he moves from that then to addressing believers married to unbelievers. And this was probably a, a, a major problem in this church, right? Can you imagine these people in Corinth coming to Christ and being saved? Now they're a part of First Christian Church Corinth. And you've got all these weird situations where you have maybe a husband who was saved and his wife not. Or a wife who is saved and her husband is not. And so you've got these people now in the church asking the question, well, now I'm a Christian. Now God has made me a new creation, but my spouse is not. And now we're unequally yoked. So what do we do? Should I just get rid of her and go look for a, a believing spouse now? Should I just dump that guy and go find a Christian man to marry? These are the kind of questions that are likely coming up in the context of the church. And so Paul has to address, what do you do when you're a believer who's married to an unbeliever? And he says very directly, if that is your condition, you are a believer, you are married to an unbeliever, if that unbeliever wants to stay in the marriage and desires to remain married to you, you remain married. You don't divorce them. It is not a good and righteous thing to sever a marriage, even to pursue a believing spouse. You remain married, and you remain faithful to your marriage. And it's in this context here in chapter 7 that he addresses this unique situation where divorce is made, an accommodation is made for divorce in the second category. He says, if you are a believer and you are married to an unbeliever, and the unbeliever says, listen, I'm not on board with your Christianity. I don't want any part of that. I don't want a part of you. And they leave. And they want to leave. And they do leave. Paul says very, very directly, in such cases, let it be so. The brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. The believer is to let the unbeliever go in peace. They are not to harass them. They are not to go to war with them. They are to strive for peace and to let them go. And the language here is very clear. The believer is not enslaved, it says in the ESV translation. Other translations render that not under bondage or no longer bound. They are no longer obligated in the relationship is the clear indication here. They are free to divorce. They are to let the unbelieving spouse go in peace. Now just as an aside, I will make note of this. There is significant debate in the broader theological evangelical world regarding what this specifically means by way of application. There is debate about whether or not the innocent believer who has the unbeliever leave should file for divorce or they should wait for the leaving person to then file. Some have argued that the offended believer is free immediately in either the case of sexual immorality or the case of an unbelieving spouse leaving to initiate divorce and remarry. Others argue that in both cases, one needs to wait until there is no opportunity for reconciliation and repentance, until the door is shut, meaning the adulterous or unbelieving spouse files for divorce and remarries. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole because I don't think it's particularly productive. I'm just going to simply say this. My take on this is I don't think there's an easy pat answer that applies to every situation. I believe every situation is different. Each situation has to be approached with wisdom and with patience and with prayer and with serious counsel from godly, trusted, believing leaders. 
If you're in that position this morning, don't be rash in your decision making. Don't trust your own emotions. Be patient. Exercise wisdom. Look to those who can help come alongside you and help advise you. And the reason I say that is because I think there's wisdom that would dictate time being given, but you can't give a standard answer for everybody. You can't. The Bible makes clear as believers we're to be people who exercise forgiveness and people who pursue reconciliation. We are not to be people who are rash and unforgiving, even when there are egregious things committed against us. And so that is not now null and void in the context of divorce and marriage. That means to me that even in these two uh, sort of allowances, we're to be patient and we're to be wise and we're to allow time for repentance and allow time for reconciliation to some degree. At some point, though, it becomes obvious that this is not a possibility and that the door is shut. I think folks need help understanding and discerning where that line is, and it's not the same for everybody. So in summary, what is a marriage? A marriage is one biological man, one biological woman who come together in a light and unite, become one flesh in the lifelong covenant relationship of marriage. What does God think about divorce? He hates it, but he has made accommodation for it in two particular circumstances where one member of the relationship is involved in unrepentant adultery sexual immorality against their spouse and in the second case where an unbelieving spouse walks spouse walks away and leaves the relationship in both of those situations divorce is allowed is not a sin and so then what about remarriage okay so if, if, if in both of those cases divorce is not sinful is remarriage a sin because again there's controversy about this so what about if I'm a person who's divorced and my divorce fits one of those two categories? Am I free to remarry? I'm going to answer this very, very concisely and very clearly. I do not see any circumstance in the biblical text where God allows for divorce but does not allow for remarriage. I cannot find that anywhere. And I cannot deduce that anywhere. Though there are those in the Christian world, in the broader evangelical world, who make that argument This is really clear in, in 1 Corinthians 7.15 to me, and it speaks decisively to it. It says, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, is no longer under bondage. To then argue that in a believing spouse whose unbelieving spouse has walked away and left and remarried is to remain single and lonely for the rest of life sounds to me like enslavement and bondage. It does not sound like freedom. So I believe that the text is clear. Where God allows for divorce, he allows for remarriage. John MacArthur comments on this. He says, if God is gracious to the sinning spouse by tolerating divorce instead of requiring execution, he would surely also be gracious to the innocent spouse by permitting remarriage, which was permissible when a spouse died. I think he's right on target. So what does the Bible say about divorce? The Bible says that it's allowed in two unique cases. Apart from that, to divorce is to sin against the Lord, and to remarry is to compound that sin with the sin of adultery. That is what the Bible teaches. There is no other way to construe it. So you say to me, well, pastor, then what do I do? What if I'm divorced? What if I'm already remarried? And what if I look back and I can say, you know, it, my, my situation doesn't fit either one of those categories. What am I to do? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked it, even if you didn't, because I'm going to answer it. Because it is an incredibly important question to ask. If that's you this morning, and that's your condition, you need to hear me loud and clear when I say that the Bible does not exalt sinful divorce and remarriage to the status of unforgivable sin. It does not. Though certain people might try to do that, the Bible does not. 
While it is a grievous sin before the Lord, there is not a permanent stain on your soul in some sense because you've violated God's standard here. God is gracious. He is patient with us. And in the context of Luke 16, from where we leapt into this whole conversation, the the context all around it, what do we see Jesus doing? We see him as a friend of what kind of people? Sinners. He is one who welcomes the prostitute and the notorious sinner. He is the one who offers such people forgiveness and restoration. That's who he is. Surely he does not do that for the prostitute and the tax collector and not the one who has committed the sin of divorce. We serve a gracious Savior who he forgives us when we genuinely repent and we turn from our sin. If you're here today and that's you, what do you do? You do the same thing you do anytime the Spirit of God brings to your attention a way in which you've sinned against the Lord. You own that sin. You stop explaining it away. You stop excusing it. You own it. You admit it is what it is, a sinful violation of God's law. And you ask God to forgive you. And you turn from that sin. And you commit yourself to not committing it again into the future. That's what we do with sin, isn't it? It's called repentance. It's called repentance. And the Bible says God is faithful and just. And when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive all unrighteousness. That he takes our sin and he buries it in the depths of the ocean. The sin of divorce does not evade the blood of Christ. It cannot. And anyone who tells you that it does is a liar and a fool. If you're currently divorced and your divorce doesn't fit one of those categories and you're remarried, what do you do? You commit to honoring God in the marriage you're in. That's what you do. You honor the Lord and you serve the Lord in the marriage you're in. Because it too is a union created by the Lord. You are one flesh with your spouse. Honor the Lord in that relationship. Be a model of what a Christ-like marriage looks like in that relationship. And do not live with shame and disgrace corrupting your heart. This message really isn't just about divorce or remarriage people, though, is it? It's also a warning to those of you who are unmarried. You better take marriage seriously. Don't listen to what our culture tells you. It's garbage. Marriage is not disposable. You enter into it advisedly and with a certain level of fear and trepidation, recognizing that you are a sinner who is going to unite yourself and become one flesh with another sinner, and there are going to be fireworks, believe me. And all God's married people said, amen. You are not to marry quickly. You are to make sure you're marrying a faithful believer. Marriage is challenging even the best of circumstances. To be a fool and marry an unbeliever is to invite chaos. You're to take time to do some serious premarital counseling before you enter into the covenant of marriage. You're to go in with your eyes wide open to reality. You need to have a spiritual tool set to be able to navigate the inevitable challenges that are to come. And the sad reality is most couples, even Christian couples that marry today, spend more time thinking about and pondering and and evaluating what florist they're going to pick or what photographer than they do actually equipping themselves to be married. That's true. Invest your time preparing to spiritually spend the rest of your life with somebody before you do it. And it's a message to the married as well, to the married who are not divorced. Don't allow divorce to be a part of the conversation in your home and in your marriage. When you're in the middle of a dispute, that's not an option, it's on the table. And in the heat of the moment, don't ever threaten your spouse with divorce. Don't exalt happiness and fulfillment and romance above your commitment to your covenant of marriage that you made before the Lord. There's so much more that can be said about all of those things, but our time is overdue. 
I hope this morning that you've heard what God has to say to you about these things. I don't know how these things apply in your life or your home or your marriage, but I hope that what you hear is God has a clear standard for marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And I hope that you hear at the end of the day that even if you've sinned against the Lord in these ways, that he is still a gracious and long-suffering Savior who died on the cross for your sins, who shed his blood that you might be forgiven fully and made whole. Both are true. Let's pray together. God, I realize, I'm not, I'm not foolish, I realize that these things are hard to say and to hear in our context. I'm not naive to the fact that even in this room, a crowd this size, many, many have been touched by divorce and remarriage. Some, no doubt, can look back on their situation and can see where their divorce fell into one of these categories where you've accommodated and allowed for divorce and remarriage in a way that's holy and righteous. And for those, Lord, you have quite frequently brought into their lives a blessing of a new spouse who will be faithful, sexually faithful, a believer who will remain. And in those situations, Lord, we rejoice. We rejoice that you're a God who makes whole things that are broken. A God who redeems even divorced situations. A God who even brings joy and lifelong happiness after the brokenness and pain of going through a divorce. We celebrate that you're a God who gives second chances like that and brings eternal blessing because of it. Lord, we recognize also that there are some who look back at their own situation and they realize they didn't make wise decisions, that they sinned against you in divorcing and remarrying. I pray, God, that they would see that this morning for what it is, that you would draw them to genuine repentance in their heart. And that they would experience right this very moment your forgiveness full and free. That you would free them, Lord, from living a life of eternal shame and guilt and self-condemnation. That they might consider their sins buried in the ocean, nailed to a bloody cross where you purchased our forgiveness. And Lord, to the rest of us who are married, Lord, give us perseverance and endurance in our marriages. May we never play fast and loose with your word and your law and your truth. May we all strive to be faithful to the design that you've created for us. Faithful to you, faithful to our spouse, preserving the covenant of marriage that we might be a testimony to the world of who you are and what you do in the lives of those who follow you. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.